0: the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. (laughs) This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: Well, as we continue our podcasts from the RAAF and the centenary of this wonderful organization, over the next uh, couple, we are in the Gold Coast or even on the Gold Coast. And first up is former Wing Commander Peter Spurgeon, retired. Now, Peter has had a wide variety of Air Force operations, from flying fighters in Malaysia and Thailand to peacekeeping operations in the Sinai Desert, and lastly, with CareFlight. He joined the RAAF in 1963 and graduated as a fighter pilot. He was posted on three occasions to Malaysia, serving on sabres and also mirages. Pete also served in Ubon, Thailand during the Vietnam War on fighter alert for incursions from Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia and was also on fighter duty during the Indonesian confrontation. In 1970, he completed the sought-after fighter combat instructor course, but then in 1974, he had a huge change of direction and was posted to Huey Choppers. He served with the United Nations in the Sinai Desert twice, one as Commanding Officer Austere, UNEF-2, and for the second time with multinational force and observers, both involved with Huey Helicopters, patrolling the Sinai Desert. In 1980, he continued his chopper career as commanding officer of 9 Squadron, well known for its vital operations in Vietnam. Peter retired from the AAF in 1985. He spent the rest of his flying career as chief pilot care flight, now life flight, and then as safety and risk manager. Peter... Really nice to meet you. How are you today?
2: I'm good, thanks, Gareth. Nice to meet you too.
1: So, 1963, you decided to join the RAAF. What were you doing before that and why did you decide to join?
2: Well, okay, uh, my uncle actually flew during the Second World War. He was in fighters and flew Spitfires right through to bow fighters, mosquitoes, etc And I guess that was quite an influence for me uh, and... Uh, anyway uh, as it turned out I, I did develop this this ambition to join the Air Force uh, quite a, at quite a young age I suppose but had a few little obstacles tossed in between and uh, eventually anyway uh, I made it on the 23rd of October uh, to 1963 and um, it was only about seven days before I was too old to join, so I had to go back to night Real? school. I had to go back to night school and re-educate myself because I, I left school at about 16, and uh, didn't have the qualifications. So I worked pretty hard to get there, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, thing to receive that telegram, you know, saying that you've been accepted for number number 52 course point cook. But I it's, made it by seven days. Yeah.
1: It's so good to hear someone say, I received the telegram. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what is <Yeah>. telegram? <laughs> well,
2: the telegram? Yeah. Well, the telegram just said, you know, you've been accepted for number 52 course, uh, da-da-da-da, you know, report to the, uh, the RAAF, um office uh, in Eagle Street, Brisbane, for your final details and, and away it went, you know. So, um, yeah, is I that- arrived at Point yeah. Cook on the 23rd of October.
1: You mentioned in a few more days you would have been too old. Was there an age limit before you could join?
2: Yeah, it was uh, that stage. It was 20, uh, 23. So I was twenty-three on the, on the thirty-first of October, nineteen sixty-three.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, in by the hair of your chinny
2: chin. <laughs> 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 you could say so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So how long? You joined in nineteen sixty-three. How long before you posted to Malaysia?
2: We posted Malaysia in August sixty-five. Uh, 1965. So, uh, having done the uh, basic training and then over to Pierce to do the the Vampire course, the uh, AFTS Advanced Flying, uh, we I was posted directly to Williamtown. I might add, I was engaged at this stage too, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a uh, yeah from from uh, January '65 through to uh, I think it was May. Sixty-five. We converted onto the Sabre aircraft from the uh, from, from the, the Vampire.
1: Then did you not then do the conversion to the the Mirage as well with seventy-five Squadron?
2: Well, that was a little bit further down the track because uh, you know we I was posted to Malaysia. I got married and we got posted to Malaysia in the August of sixty-five.
1: Yeah, and
2: right. uh, and spent uh, two and a half years there um, in uh, both three Squadron Sabre and seventy-seven Squadron Sabre flying that aircraft which was a fantastic aircraft i might add yeah
1: and just out of interest your wife was she also in the RAAF or no no
2: no i met jill uh, you yeah, know when we we're about 21 i think and uh, so we were engaged before i joined the air force actually and so she okay. to, so that anyway she uh, obviously wasn't too happy to, to start with but um, <laughs> in the end it all worked out pretty well
1: she came around to your way of thinking exactly uh, we've some of the people that I've spoken to in the past, we've mentioned in brief passing the Indonesian confrontation. I've never really had the opportunity to talk to someone and dwell on it. Between 1963 and 1966, mm. you actually were involved in a war environment. Would that be true?
2: Well, yes. Uh, we, When I first arrived in uh, Butterworth, uh, we were still standing full alert, uh, dawn to dusk alert on the end of the Strip. Uh, fully armed ready to go uh, never happened uh, because you know it was things were calming down in, in 1965 yeah but um, you know that was uh, that was part and parcel of the deal and in fact I remember that uh, also there was uh, a call out when very soon after i arrived actually for all squadrons we had three squadron and 77 squadron sort of co-located and the full the full uh, com- component of those two squadrons was called together and given a briefing on the, on an airstrike that was going to happen, we thought, uh, right. in Indonesia, but it never did. It was all called off at the, at the last moment. So, I mean, it was a war environment, definitely. It was a, uh, a situ- situation that, you know, was developing. Were, under,
1: were you under Australian command or British command?
2: Uh, we are under Australian uh, at that stage, as far as I knew, and... Um, but uh, the British were still in, in, in control of the airfield but, sure. uh, but I believe we're still in, under Australian command. Yeah. Well, let's
1: focus then on the, the flying. What were you flying? You talked about weaponry. What was the weaponry? What, what was the equipment on offer to the RAAF personnel during that confrontation even though it was almost over?
2: Okay, well we were uh, fully armed uh, say on, on the ORP. We'd have uh, the requirement to be airborne within three minutes. Uh, we're fully armed with sidewinder missiles, with 30 uh, mm uh, cannon, uh, 240 rounds of 30 uh, mm HE uh, uh, rounds, and basically, when you weren't uh, when you weren't on alert, then you were doing the normal squadron operations, which would be uh, okay, dropping di- dropping practice bombs on the Song Song range. Which uh, you know was always pretty exciting, putting at the ground between 30 degrees and 60 degrees, trying to hit this little target down there somewhere in the water. Then we had rocketry, which um, was uh, another another delivery of weapon delivery system. Yep. Um, but um, that was for, that was for purely for ground attack, and that was quite exciting. You press into the target around about 1,500 feet slant range, and release, and um, the rock would zoom off with the concrete head. Sometimes it didn't go off and sometimes they did all funny things. But, um, but no, that was, a, that was a really good sport. And, and then there was 30 millimetre rounds, throwing 30 mm rounds at a, at a target uh, on the sand spit at Song Song Island. Uh,
1: and that and was the
2: normal routine, you know.
1: How effective were the aircraft in that situation? You're the pilot. Yeah. What, what was your feeling of the aircraft you are flying?
2: Oh, well, it was, <clears throat> it was a wonderful aircraft to fly. It was a great delivery system, uh, stable, a stable system for, uh, for for bombing and for rocketry and for for air to ground gunnery, and of course uh, I can also uh, must mention air to air, air to air tactics was one of our big uh, programs, uh, yeah. where we'd uh, where we'd fly against each other, uh, similar aircraft, which was a uh, which was one aspect of it, but um, you became pretty adept. At air to air tactics and air to air gunnery. And a Sabre would, uh, t- would, you'd have a tug towing a banner. The banner would uh, disappear out into the uh, Malacca Straits. And uh, then we'd form eight, uh, four, usually four aircraft at a time, and then fire on that banner in a pattern uh, that uh, would, you know, just a straight line pattern. Uh, right. And so it all coordinated. If you uh, you know you couldn't get out of place, you had to you keep coordination, keep uh, the other people all uh, visual, and uh, make sure you weren't going to hit anybody. Of course, with the rounds you're about to fire.
1: Mm. Who were the other nationals involved while you were there at the late 1965, apart from Australians?
2: Well, there were the <coughs> the English were there, uh, flying the uh, javelin javelin aircraft out of Butterworth. Uh, they were a bit of a strange aircraft, but. Um,
1: in what way, Peter? In what way?
2: Well, um, when they started the aircraft, they had to have somebody underneath the aircraft looking into the wheel well to make sure it didn't catch fire. It was very prone to ignition on startup, And quite a number of times you'd hear the uh, the bell go off, there'd been a fire in 60 squadron lines, and, uh, yeah, that uh, that was one of the issues. But they uh, they used to fly in some pretty rough conditions whereas we you know we wouldn't fly at night for example during thunderstorm we weren't a we weren't a night fighter in the sabre we yeah. are uh, we're a day fighter and uh, but they were fully prepared to do uh, night flying in all sorts of conditions and uh, i remember one story about um, the javelin operating out of Labuan and Borneo because they were over there as well during Anyway, it was in the flight safety magazine, the, the uh, Far East uh, Air Force Flight Safety magazine, and uh, it related the story of this pilot climbing out from from Labuan, um, from Borneo, at night, passing around twenty thousand feet. There was this bang and a whoosh, and uh, he reported. The, he reportedly said, "Well, I knew what had happened because it had happened before. My navigator had been ejected in the back seat." <laughs> So there must have been an HF spike somewhere, and uh, and off it went. You know the uh, the navigator. He said, "But it happened before, so I knew what I knew what to do." So anyway, yes. I don't know whether the navigator survived, but it was a, uh, a, a typical, you know, pommy, tongue in the tongue in the cheek type comment. But anyway. <laughs>
1: just i just lost my navigator <laughs> but i'll keep on flying thank god for the saber a, a technical question you're in the saber uh, in the practice situation and you fire one of your sidelinders or you fire one of your rockets the the plane at that stage no doubt is flying faster than the rocket when it, it it's off goes how do you do you phase out of the the rocket path what what's this what's the system
2: well the rocket also has the velocity of the aircraft as well yep. So uh, <clears throat> so you just watch it go uh, and eventually you, you know you would you would sort of close close on it but very you know, not not significantly so you didn't shoot yourself down no you no, it was pretty hard to shoot yourself down <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> let's let's leave the Indonesian confrontation and go to Thailand Ubon mm. in Thailand uh, this is during the Vietnam War. I believe your task was to stop incursions from Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. Yeah. What did that involve?
2: Well, okay. Well, once again, that involved us um, rotating through Yubon. Probably uh, every six months we uh, we did a two-month rotation. Um, that was your – you know, you would do a six-month rotation. But we had two squadrons doing it, 77 and 3, and so the, the squadrons were mixed together and uh, and, and – It was a good idea, too, because you got to know the other guys in the other squadron quite well. Um, But then you'd um, do a dawn-to-dusk alert, fully armed, once again, with sidewinders and uh, 30mm HE rounds, sitting on the end of the strip uh, and um, waiting for the radar station, which was Lion at the time, Lion Radar, run by the United States, um, to... um, to uh, detect and, uh, and intercept whatever was not they didn't recognise and,
1: uh, and that occur often
2: yeah we did uh, I had a look at my logbook actually the first the first attachment was um, was two months and I did uh, two two scrambles in the first uh, couple of weeks but it was not usually it was something like Air America or you know an uh, aircraft that uh, didn't flight plan or didn't inform Lion what was going on but um, you never knew that and. Um, so, you're always fully prepared. And in one case, it was an SR 71 flying at about 80,000 feet, for example, you know, and we would never get to it. But um, um, but they eventually identified it.
1: So, Rob, what sort of aircraft was that that you would going to use the letters?
2: SR 71, it was a, uh, a spy machine, basically. It was flown by the United States Air Force and okay. uh, high over 80,000 feet plus over Vietnam, um, coming back and. Uh, anyway the f4s were coming back from the uh, from a strike in North Vietnam and uh, and they jettisoned their, their load and uh, and tried to intercept it but uh, it was way up there but it identified they identified the aircraft and yeah, we, we yeah. were we were circling down at about 12,000 feet waiting for something to happen um, but uh, it anyway so we went back uh, without hey,
1: I'm interested to know, to, to prevent incursions from Laos and Cambodia, would they have been uh, communist incursions? Was that, the, was that the thought?
2: Oh, yeah, the thought was that uh, the borders of Thailand weren't, weren't uh, necessarily secure. Uh, the border from, from Cambodia down south and from Laos, in fact, Laos was, uh, wasn't a friendly country at the time, as I recall. And um, uh, yeah, anything could have happened. Basically, uh, we, we were yeah. right on the right on the Mekong River, which was yeah. on, on the border, you know, of Laos and uh, and Thailand. So, we, I,
1: I've often heard various people I've spoken in the past when they're talking about Vietnam saying they weren't allowed to cross the border into Cambodia. Mm. What would have happened if that, even if by accident that had happened? What what were the consequences?
2: Well, I don't think very much. Um, it might have been a diplomatic issue, but. Um, uh and i think it did happen by mistake on the odd occasion yep. but uh, but really it uh it, it, there wasn't there wouldn't have been much repercussion uh, as far as uh, we were concerned anyway you know
1: fair yeah, enough yeah i, I want to know i want to know about your your fighter combat instructor course uh, before you get into huey's what was what did that involve and was that your choice or someone else's choice
2: well, no, it was, a, uh, it was a nomination, I suppose, to, to do the course in the first instance. At this stage, I was flying Mirage. And, uh, <clears throat> and anyway, yes, uh, there was a six-month course which was extremely difficult. It was an in-depth course on systems and weapons and uh, tactics, uh, and uh, it was just a never-ending uh, six months of hard labour. But yep. um, but at the end of it, um, it was uh, I did some ins- did instruction on uh, uh, at OCU converting other pilots on the Mirage, and then was was uh, posted to seventy five squad in Butterworth again uh, to act as a Sea Fly commander and fighter combat instructor for the court, for the for the pilots. In other words, you know, I uh, I yep. do all the mass briefings and uh, the tactics uh, uh, involved in in operating the aircraft descent as, as efficiently as possible hmm. in some where,
1: where was that was done initially that six months was that in Australia or yeah, it was
2: in Australia that was at Williamtown in Australia yeah. uh, right. the, the fighter base
1: so, and what about then when you are now an instructor and you're tr- transferring the information you have to young pilots what, what was that like as an experience I mean virtually a teacher
2: well yes you were, you, you, were, you were instructing uh, ground school, various, uh, you became a little bit more in, informed on things like weaponry uh, to pass the knowledge across to the young guys coming through and also, wep- and also aircraft systems and, and my, mine was the fuel system, I, I really uh, got to know the engine and the fuel system quite well and so that was my area of expertise uh, uh, to uh, instruct in the, the young fellows coming through. And then, of course, you became the Tantagill expert. So when you went to the squadron, you, um, well, the first thing I was asked was to, uh, to improve the bombing average of the, uh, of the squadron, <clears throat> which involved um, um, actually employing a different system of, of, of entry into the, uh, into, the, into the dive angle. And um, it proved to be quite, ac- quite a, uh, an accurate uh, method in those conditions. Uh, in the in the tropical tropical conditions, so um, so yes, and I was also test flying aircraft and what have you. Let me
1: just, let me just stop you there. That this system that you introduced in in the tropics, uh, what was it before? Remember, I'm not a member of the air force, so therefore stand for jargon. What was it before, and what did you suggest as changes to it?
2: Mm. Okay, well the bombing average is around about 120 to 150 feet. Uh, from the you know from the target. So in other words, they triangulate where the bomb landed after you dropped it, and uh, from, we had a, a range hut. People in the range hut would then assess the the distances from the target for the of the bomb once you dropped it. the the, uh, the average was 150. Using a technique they call the drift technique, which was so you'd roll in at say 10,000 feet, and yep. you you'd let the aircraft come down, and you had to control the aircraft down to 4,000 feet, drifting. Either way or the other, depending on the wind. Yep. So there's very little wind in in uh, in the tropics, um, generally speaking. So all that time in the dive was time you had to try and control the aircraft, and uh, and you could get a little bit out of phase with things. Yep. The um, the uh, the other thing was it wasn't a very tactical to- sort of a weapon delivery, as far as I was concerned. Um, <clears throat> if you if you um, imagine being x amount of time in the dive people had x amount of time to shoot at you for example if that was the case yep but if you rolled in at say six thousand feet at uh, and pull the aircraft around you could come to it you could get that sight picture that you needed very quickly and drop the bomb very quickly and, and, and go very quickly so right. it was least exposure mind you the engineers didn't like it because you were pulling a lot of g coming around the corner and releasing the bomb but we reduced the bombing average down to about uh, 60-something feet from, by doing, employing that. And, uh, and so anyway, that was one of the things that I had to do. I was asked by the CO to reduce the, 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 the bombing average. So I changed the technique, and I was able to do that. Whether or not you'd... Whether or not-
1: what, the, what was the argument like with the engineers then? If they were saying, you've, you've got these extra Gs, I mean, you obviously won the argument. What did you do to win the argument?
2: Well, we didn't take too much notice of that, but in, in the in the end, however, they introduced these uh, micro-fails, I think they called it, which they uh, which they believed um, would be, uh, and, and they're quite, probably quite right too. But the um, the in peacetime the aircraft uh, suffered a bit too many too many g uh, to for too too short a period, you know. So um, I believe that they they uh, they changed the system back to drift drift technique again and uh but anyway I was out of there and I joined the helicopters (laughs) What
1: what you demonstrate Peter is 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 this larrikinism about uh people in the defense forces and we respect authority but we'll push the envelope a little bit I mean is this is this what you're saying
2: well you know I mean we're supposed to train for uh for what we're going to be exposed to and uh you know and in uh in all essence you don't want to be too long sort of mucking around in the in the in the bombing pattern uh, dropping bombs on somebody who's trying to trying to shoot you down so
1: yeah i understand why did you change from fighters to hueys to helicopters
2: well i think uh i didn't do much about it i was uh, i was quite ensconced in the fighter world and i remember my co calling me in and saying well Suppose I got good news and bad news. I said, "Well, let's have the good news." And he said, "Well, he posted back to Australia," and he said, "But it's to Fire Squadron." I thought Fire Squadron. They must be. They must be creating another fighter squadron. <laughs> but, but I knew Nine Squadron. I knew about Nine Squadron in Vietnam. But I, Fire Squadron was another squadron that um, in in Australia. This is how tunnel vision we were. I suppose in in fighters, but um, uh, Fire Squadron. Oh, I would never heard of it. And um, <laughs> you might be surprised, but anyway, that's the way I felt. I thought, what is it? He said, well, it's a helicopter squadron, tra- helicopter training squadron, and you're posted there as of January uh, 19, uh, whatever it was, 1974. Oh, crikey, right. what have I done wrong here? Anyway, uh, it was quite a blow, To uh, but I thought about it, and I thought, well, maybe Ronnie rafford has got some sort of plan there. Uh, and also, I must admit, Another one of my friends, who was an FCI, with with me on course, uh, we both uh, both graduated as FCI's at the same time. Terry Wilson was also posted to Fire Scotland from as a, as an FCI. So yep. I thought, well, maybe there's a grand plan here. So we'll just we'll just suck it and see. And um, and so I ended up on helicopters.
1: Yeah, good experience. In retrospect, when you look back. The actual helicopters, I don't mean where you ended up, but the helicopter itself.
2: No, no, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was great flying. It was, it was really uh, uh, different, of course, but uh, it was cr- flying with the crew, for starters, which was something that, as a, as a fighter pilot, you never did. You know, you're on your own from woe. Yeah. And, uh, and so you had to uh, get used to a totally different environment, a uh, totally different method of flying, but just as many skills involved even though it was low-level, slow-speed slow, level, slow speed, uh, yep. operation uh, compared to fighters. Uh, it was a very demanding operation, and we saw, saw a lot of the world very slowly, actually, in, in helicopters.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Mm. Um, although uh, we're, we go to October, I think October 1973, and what's hap- what happened in 2021 in the Middle East in May of 2021 between uh, Israel and Hamas, the Middle East has always been a hot hotbed there's the six day war that occurs the fourth Arab Israeli war yeah. uh, and Australia gets involved in peacekeeping following yeah. the ceasefire right. what did that involve how how difficult was that what are your experiences there because that's a significant event in history
2: yes well um, we were uh, assigned then to the United Nations as a uh, helicopter unit the um, uh, UNAF, United Nations Emergency Forces, and uh, we had uh, six aircraft to then to uh, allocate it to a, uh, an area called uh, Ismailia, Ismailia Airfield, and Ismailia Town on the Suez Canal. I don't know whether you know the Suez Canal very well at all, but it's sort of halfway down the canal, and um, <clears throat> we we operated there in support of the um, of the armies. Army battalions that were posted throughout the Sinai Desert. Their their objective was to maintain distance between the uh, the Israelis and the Egyptians, and also uh, to make sure that the uh, that the the actual articles of the uh, of the agreement uh, between the uh, the two sides were not being were not being, uh, were not being um, Compromised. Compromised. Uh, so then that involved weapons weapons sort of inspections by the by the, from the battalions, and so essentially it was just sort of keeping the two sides apart. Um, and we were, we were we were involved in in doing uh, reconnaissance and resupply, basically uh, of the contingents that were down the uh, down the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula.
1: How did the helicopters handle? It's it's a desert and it's hot and yeah. the setting. How did the, the equipment handle the conditions?
2: Well, uh, the after a while we found that we needed to do in, engine inspections a lot more regularly because of the sand involvement. But we did had we did have um, separators in the aircraft, which uh, which did help, but um, the ingestion of the of the sand. But still, it was like uh, very fine sand, and uh, and it could erode very erode components in the engine very quickly. So we did a lot more inspections and uh, yeah, a lot more maintenance involved uh, with the aircraft. But overall, the aircraft performed very well indeed. And of course, the temperatures—you'd be surprised. Uh, although the temperatures during summer were quite hot, the temperatures during winter were very cold too. But um, but anyway, that was another point. The um, the aircraft performed well. We uh, we had uh, very little problems, I suppose, apart from the ingestion of sand.
1: Yeah you were you were there twice actually was the first time as a commanding officer of the unit
2: well both were actually yeah commander res- of, sorry
1: what are your responsibilities in that role in that environment
2: well in the first instance at Ismailia, uh, it uh we had a fully RAAF contingent there and navy we had an RAN component as well there's a total of about 50 of us uh which included the pilots Crewmen, engineers, and support staff, uh, such as cooks, for example, we had uh, we had the finest, uh, finest little cafe cafeteria on the on the Suez Canal, and uh, it was a it was a quite a quite a uh, uh, a popular place to be for the other, for other contingents to come along too. Although it was very small, we would entertain. Uh, we're in contingents. Uh, some people from contingents there on a regular basis, but anyway, um, the uh, just well, I was just like a CO of a squadron, basically, uh, plus a liaison with the United Nations uh, force commander, who was um, uh, a guy by the name of Rice Sabin, uh, an Indonesian actually. But you know, generally speaking, my 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 involvement was to make sure that we we could we could um, operate as we're supposed to operate and uh, and, ex- and uh, discharge the, uh, the responsibility of, uh, of the United Nations requirements, you know.
1: Isn't that amazing? Uh, in the 60s, Australian uh, there in the Indonesian confrontation, mm. here we are in the 70s, a decade later, yep. and it's Indonesian. Uh, it's just, the history is, is remarkable. Were it's you 70s. under Commander Headley Thomas?
2: Uh Hedley Thomas was a uh was a commanding officer when I was a uh, when I was a, uh, a flight commander in 5 squadron and Hedley was the first guy up there Hedley was the first um commander of the of the you of the UNF, of the UNF uh, contingent. Yep. And uh, and so yes I knew Hedley quite well.
1: Uh what's it like you're there under the auspices of the United Nations, and that's involving all nations. What's it like the intercooperation between the various contingents that were there as peacekeepers from different countries?
2: Yes, well, we had the uh, we had the Swedes, we had the uh, the Finns, we had uh, uh, a small Russian contingent, we had uh, Poles, we had Dutch, and yeah. uh, and it was very interesting. We were we were. Um, we were all very well received, and everyone was um, uh, very friendly, uh, and we had no difficulty at all with with any of the contingents. Even though some of them uh, we might have, you know, we might have uh, uh, been quite foreign to us, but they could all speak English, and that was one of the big factors uh, that made it a bit more comfortable. We were the only sort of um, single. Single-language country in the whole in the whole uh, area. Actually, you know, um, we had to speak very slowly because people couldn't understand our the inflection. <laughs> in fact, uh, in fact, we, you know, we used to talk very slowly to the uh, the Finns were very nice people, great people, and we used to spend a lot of time with the Finns because they're right down the end of the Sinai Peninsula, <clears throat> and we'd overnight down there. And I remember one night we we're actually playing darts, and we we're we were playing with the Finns, and we were speaking very slowly. And then all of a sudden we broke into our own vernacular, and one officer came up and said, "Excuse me, sir, but what language are you speaking now?"
1: <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, but no, we,
2: we got along. We got along pretty well. We all sort of socialised, and we'd, we'd have our cocktail parties, and we will invite them to the to the Sinai Palace Hotel, and uh, yeah, it worked pretty well, all in all.
1: And what about the relationship? Of Australians, not the others, with both Israeli and Arab people that you were there to supervise.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, um, I found the Egyptians uh, quite friendly, you know, uh, but they were more laissez-faire than the Israelis. The Israelis were pretty, uh, you know, they were on edge all the time. When you went when you went to Israel, everyone was armed, Um, and uh, in Egypt, sort of, yeah, okay. they weren't. They weren't as sort of. Uh, I don't know. They weren't. They weren't as aware of, of the whole situation in a lot of respects. You know, they were. They were sort of, a bit more laissez-faire. Was the, the Israelis were very, um, very aware. They only had three million people, and everyone was sort of, uh, you know, They're they ready to fight a war on the next, at the drop of a hat. Um, I think yep. the Israelis were very, very careful though, not to, uh, not to upset them in, in any respects when we were there. Um, sure. But uh, by the same token. Um, You could never underestimate the Egyptians either.
1: Yeah. You you must, in retrospect, Peter, you've been part of the Royal Australian Air Force and it's now celebrating its 100 years. And you've been there in three key moments. You were Mm -hmm. there with the Indonesian confrontation. You were there during the Vietnam War. And even though it's peacekeeping, it's still an important role. You're there in the Sinai between well the hotbed that the the Middle East is that must make you feel I hope very proud to be part of such an important organization as the RAF is
2: oh very much so very much so uh, Gareth uh, yes it was a uh, it was a busy time in fact uh, a very busy time and uh, I mean not not only were we involved in in, in the Middle East but um, but we are involved all around the place uh, in the helicopters. We were involved in New Guinea, also mapping in Indonesia and Sumatra. We were, we were just doing um, army support in Australia, but a whole heap of other things as well. And to be then, OK, involved also in the Middle East, where I must admit my, uh, I didn't find out until after his death, but my uncle actually flew out of Ismailia uh, during the Second World War. I mean, uh. it, it, it was... It was you could see the Australian influence right throughout the area too, which was something else that uh, was was uh, you know very interesting. There were gum what, what, what? gum trees, gum trees planted everywhere. Really, uh, from the uh, what they call the um, <clears throat> the main road from from Ismailia to Cairo um, was lined with gum trees. Uh, one of them was they had they had a a, a sort of a they had a, a an M1 if you like as well, but the original road from from Ismailia to Cairo, was gum trees all all, all the way down through that uh, through that hundred and, hundred odd kilometers. Um, it was very spectacular. And the the other thing that impressed me over there were the um, were the were the the, uh, the cemeteries and you know, the war the the war cemeteries. The even world-wide. even though there'd been war fought fought you know all over the place right through the Sinai, littered with rubbish, littered with tanks, aircraft, and Lines of communication, you know, you could see it. All mines all around the place. This, the the cemeteries were just in perfect condition, and um, that was impressive too. So, yeah. but anyway, uh, it was yes, I was proud to be there. In uh, the second time, the uh, with the uh, with the MFO <coughs> I was in charge of uh, of about one hundred and twenty, almost you know, one hundred and twenty odd people, a mixture of New Zealanders as well as Australians and Navy and Army. So. Yeah, it was um, it was a very interesting period of my life. Uh,
1: which nation did you find most like us, and perhaps the easiest to work with yeah, well, in the forces?
2: Well, if you're talking about the the foreign nations, uh, certainly the uh, we had a great a great uh, relationship with the Finnish battalion, um, and. Um, um, as I said before, you know we uh, we're very similar in outlook. Uh, they are very uh, they're very efficient uh, people, you know, in terms of uh, their operation. Yep. Uh, and and we got along together very well indeed. Um, so I'd say that the the Finnish the Finnish people were the Finnish contingent was the closest that we we'd get to uh, any other contingent. But by the same token, the Swedes and the uh, uh, were, were very similar as well uh, to the, the Finns. But it was it was interesting. You go to a cocktail party, uh, you'd have the the Finns, the Russians, the Swedes. Uh, the Dutch, the Germans—they'd all sort of been at each other's throats at some stage of their their, their history. You know, yes. <laughs> and a few, there, few, there you few glances. Again. Like, do you remember the? Do you remember the invasion? You, you know, in 1867, <laughs> uh, whatever. Anyway, but they are all very friendly people. Mm.
1: Yesterday's enemy is today's friend. So. Exactly as it turns out. All right, let's bring you back to Australia. You're back now as CO of Nine Squadron. Uh, that's a, a squadron that, that was certainly well known for its vital operations in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, good memories there.
2: Oh, definitely, yeah. No, we operated out of Amberley Base, uh, which was my Brisbane was my hometown. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a great uh, privilege to be able to uh, to operate as CO of Nine Squadron. Yeah, so
1: um, helicopters in the blood.
2: Well, yeah. In fact, uh, that, ins- that affected my afterlife too, for after the uh, after the RAAF. But um, but uh, but certainly, uh, helicopters became a way of life, and uh, uh, I actually flew helicopters for 40 odd years. Uh, well, sorry, 30 years, um, having left the aircraft, uh, having followed up once I left the air force with um, helicopters.
1: Remember, Peter, if you'd been seven days later, you wouldn't have been able to get into the air force. You'd have been too old. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that would have been a great disappointment, however. Life goes on. But, um, yeah, that no, was a great privilege. And, uh, of course, I only did 18 months in, in, as a CO of Nine Squadron because then I was posted to the ACMFO, which was the second tour up in uh, in, in the Sinai Desert.
1: And how did wing commander role come, come about? What what, 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 was, what was the lead-up to that? You are wing, wing commander, retired.
2: Well yeah i mean it's just a progression really um but you had to so you had to pass various stages uh you had to do your your uh, um ref, ref staff college for example uh they tried to turn me into an academic but it was totally failed totally <laughs> failed um but then but then having having done the done the uh the qualifications to become a wing commander was just certainly a matter of time then really um,
1: Why why did, or not why, I suppose, you retired from the Air Force in what year? And I want to get to your next stage with helicopters in just a moment, but I'm interested to know the the timeline around retirement. Well, um, it's never an easy
2: decision, but uh, but I could see that, look, I'm an aviator, okay? I'm, I'm not... They tried to, to turn me into a, into a staff officer, but I just wasn't hacking it. Um, the, um, the flying was my game, and uh, and I could see that at the end of the end of the day, I did two stints as staff officer. Uh, one as OI Hill, which was uh, quite interesting, and the other one was a chief of air force material in the, that office. I was um, uh, I had I had anyway. I won't go into that because that's not flying, but. Um, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, that my time in the Air Force was limited I was old in terms of uh, promotion uh, yeah. because I joined at uh, 22.11 uh, 11 yeah. months and um, and it, it it wasn't going to help me but not only that our children were we had 17 moves I think in that in that period of time Uh the, the 22 years after when I when I did eventually retire the 17 odd moves the children, my daughter went to something like eight different schools. So we decided to throw the anchor out, and, uh, and that's exactly what we did. It wasn't, wasn't an easy decision, but, uh, and, but as I said, helicopters did uh, give me a, a career path out, out, of the, uh, out of the Air Force.
1: Talking about your wife and family would almost be a whole other interview, so I won't dwell no. on that. Right. I made a family decision, that's, that's fantastic. But now, or then rather... You're still with helicopters. Tell me about CareFlight. How did you get involved and why?
2: Oh, you've heard about CareFlight. Okay. Um, yes. I didn't, okay. I didn't expect this one, but um, well, having made the decision uh, to get out, we thought, well, okay. Um, we always wanted to come back to the area here. I was in the Surf Life Saving Association <clears throat> before I joined the Air Force. I was very keen on, on the beach and so was Jill. So we decided we'll go to we'd have a would settle down uh, on the Gold Coast. So having done that, I had a friend, a good, a good mate of mine who served with me, in fact, in uh, in uh, Unif, uh, a Navy guy by the name of Jeff vital <coughs> and uh, Jeff was uh, operating in the Northern Rivers area with the with the helicopter rescue service down there. So he said, "Look, you might uh, you might go and poke your head in the hangar up at." Carrara, which is where the uh, Surf Life Saving had their, had their helicopter uh, operating. Actually, what well, didn't belong to the Surf Life Saving, it was the Gold Coast Helicopter Rescue Service Limited. And he said, Go and poke your head in the hangar there, because I've heard a rumour about uh, they're short of a pilot. So I went up there and uh, I did just that. And I was snapped up immediately uh, because they'd just lost their chief pilot. And um, and I was uh, engaged with uh, the Helic- Gold Coast Helicopter Rescue Service on the first of January. Um, sort of after leaving and settling in at Gold Coast, it was no matter of time before I was actually flying helicopters again. So uh, in those days, there was a little Jet Ranger, and we were doing beach patrols. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was a good life. Um, there was a run by run like a surf club in those days, yep. where we had. Um uh, a volunteer crew, and um, and also um, a little Bell two hundred six, which was a, a a very junior aircraft. If you like, it's a very small aircraft compared to the to the UH one H, the Huey that we're flying. But anyway, um, as time progressed, the uh, the Gold Coast Hospital become very interested in aeromedical evacuation, and um, so we are basically approached by the doctors up there to to see what we could do in terms of very medical operations uh, the uh, the the guy that actually stimulated a lot of this was uh, was the guy who was uh, Ashley Vanderveld who was in fact in fact a crewman he was a water policeman at the time but he was chief crewman and, and Ashley had actually uh, operated in this in this company from 1981 and I joined at 1985 and and Ash was the driving force behind all this anyway. So it turned out that um, we op- we cooperated with the uh, with the doctors up in Gold Coast Hospital. They uh, we went out on on uh, rescue missions and aeromedical missions, a few, only a few, uh, just to test the system. Uh, and eventually, to cut a long story short, we ended up with the governor's order and council to operate as a, as an ambulance. Um, and um, we then we then able to recruit ambulance officers on board as well as as well as our own crew. Uh, so here we were, and that was now 1980 1987, and we decided to upgrade the helicopter to a squirrel. And so it went on. We ended up doing a lot of work with uh, with uh, with uh, the medical staff, even neonatal operations with this little other little aircraft. Um, I'm trying to make it as short as I can, but the, uh, the... Don't,
1: make them, don't there's no time limit. <laughs> oh, okay,
2: all right. Well, as it turns out, the, the the surf lifesaving were providing us with the sponsorship of Westpac. We would get the Westpac money um, as part of it anyway to operate as surf surf lifesaving wanted us to operate. Yep. So um, we 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 tried to negotiate with surf lifesaving about about the aeromedical operations, but uh, they weren't too keen on that, and they wanted uh, virtually the helicopter to be only in surf in, on the beach patrols. So we decided that we would we would move out and we'd uh, try and get a sponsorship to operate as an aeromedical operation. Um, and we were both both sides were happy with that with that arrangement. Surf Life yep. Saving ended up uh, with with their the, getting their Westpac uh, sponsorship money to to um, to another organisation. And we, as, as uh, Gold Coast Helicopter Rescue Service, changed our name to CareFlight. And, and in, 19, in the early 1990s, we actually received a sponsorship from RACQ to operate as an aeromedical operation. And that, that still exists today. Um, the, uh, it was an interesting procedure. We, we, we actually we had enough money to survive up to a certain, certain point of time. But the RACQ came in just at the last, uh, last moment, and uh, we we were then on our road, on 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 our track. But um, the RACQ had only ever before sponsored an under ten rugby union team, so for, <laughs> it was a big it was a big jump for them too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, we progressed from there, and um, we uh, in nineteen ninety four, the aeromedical side was. Um, Getting more and more, uh, in, well, we were getting more and more involved with night operations. The uh, the squirrel was a, a VFR aircraft, visual only, you know. So the weather was always an issue. Yeah. The the, uh, the demand for the aircraft was becoming increasing, was increasing. The uh, the type of mission we were flying was uh, was becoming more complicated and complex. Uh, every time, for example, we had a rescue mission on, we'd had to get up and change configuration of the aircraft, weight configuration, and also put the put the winch on board the uh, the aircraft. Yep. But we uh, we we and we also had a medical crew on board at all times. So you know, it was getting to the stage where we were, where we needed to upgrade the aircraft. And in 1904, we upgraded to the uh, Bell 412, which was a twin engine fully IFR uh, yeah. aircraft, uh, a, great, a great aircraft to fly. I loved it, We still got them. Yeah. And, uh, and so from there, we, we actually um, uh, moved from, from, well, we actually moved from Carrara earlier in the piece down to the Gold Coast Airport, uh, after spending uh, a number of years at John Finn Hospital too, I might add, uh, in between. They, they catered for our operation there for a number of years but uh, because of the encroachment you know the suburban encroachment onto the uh onto our approach and departure paths we had to um, we had to move operations down at airport yep. i'm sorry if i'm skipping over things here because i know no
1: no look peter i am just in awe of uh what the RAF R, sorry the RAF the RAAF mm-hmm. has provided Australia in terms of expertise and uh, your your story is remarkable. Uh, uh, Indonesian confrontation, Vietnam, Middle East, uh, C.O. wing commander. It's just, it really is an amazing story. And now Careflight, you were there at the start, and look at Careflight now. It's it's an unbelievable institution.
2: Well, there's two Careflights. One was Sydney, and one was yep. uh, one was up here. Two different organisations, but uh, but friends of each organisation actually. Uh, helped each other and yep. um so uh, so we 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 adapt we adopted the name CareFlight because they helped us get the racq uh sponsorship and in then initially they they had the nrma uh sponsorship in in sydney yeah and that that all flowed over into 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 our uh, organization but um but now it's called life flight i don't know whether you realize that but they recently changed the name to Lifeflight, and um and so when you see Life Flight and Care Flight, you realise that they're two separate organisations. Whereas before, it wasn't so. And
1: are you still involved?
2: No, I'm not. No, I, I retired uh, after 27 years uh, in in Care Flight, as it was then. Yep. Um So, and they've moved. They they moved base to uh, to um, to Brisbane. To, for, there was one of the, I think, I believe it was a government requirement that they moved to Brisbane to centralise the operation.
1: Well, look, Peter, thank you for sharing what is truly a remarkable story. And your family, your children, and Jill, they must be pretty proud of you. Uh, you're a remarkable Australian, and you are part of 100 years of history of the Royal Australian Air Force and what it has given Australia in other areas other than just the defence of Australia. So, thank you, sir. It's been a privilege and an honour to talk to you.
2: Thanks very much, Gareth. Been a privilege talking to you guys too. Thank you very much.
1: Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Addua and Astra
0: This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families produced by Air Force Association New South Wales which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.